Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. Recently, I was on a road trip uh, with my family, and everyone is fast asleep. And I'm enjoying some quiet as a driver. And then all of a sudden, you know what that is? It's that rumble strip. It says rumble strips. It's that time where your tires touch the rumble strip. And it doesn't matter how much you touch that thing, those things work. They work. Everybody's awake. Everybody's alert now, including my heart rate. Um, so love them or hate them, they work. The second I was drifting into danger, and not just danger for my own car, but danger for others as well on the highway, I was back into safety. And so even though they can be abrasive, a little much, at the end of the day, I'm glad for the rumble strip. This morning we are going to take an aerial view of the book of Hebrews. Uh, We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Hebrews doesn't say. But we do know who received it. A community of Jesus, a community of followers of Jesus, who are beginning to drift. And so if you have your Bibles open, you can look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. And there, friends, is really the burden of Hebrews. These folks... This early community of Jesus were on fire for Jesus in so many costly ways. But then life poured cold water on that fire. Faith got difficult. With hardship, with disillusionment, I'm sure, with disappointment, they all were taking residence in their relationship with Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews writes... If you look at chapter 13, verse 22, what is called a brief word of exhortation. Now, as a long-winded pastor, okay, I am actually comforted to know that this sort of 13-chapter uh, letter is considered brief by God's own word. Okay? So I'm just kidding. Um, it is a word of encouragement, though. It is an exhortation. It's a, some have described Hebrews as a sermon. This ancient letter is, in a way, a loving and carefully crafted rumble strip for Jesus' followers. So maybe we're dozing off, or distracted, or maybe we're just having trouble focusing because of the hardship that we are encountering again and again and again. No matter where you are this morning, no matter where you are this morning, Hebrews is a gift to you. But before we see how, let's just pray briefly, Lord... Would the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer? 
Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, so that we wouldn't just keep you at a distance, but that we would experience your presence this morning and be transformed. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have a, a large collection of small regrets. Anyone else? <laughs> the biggest of my small regrets happened to me the summer before I went off to college. I'm 18 years old, and to prepare for dorm life, I sell my Olympic white American Standard Fender Stratocaster. It's a guitar. To a buddy, for who knows what reason, for who knows how much. I have no idea now. I forget. I don't even know what my rationale was. I think it was, I might not have room in my dorm for it. Which is a terrible reason. <laughs> it's a terrible reason. Talking about short-term thinking, right? That is the definition of short-term thinking. I mean, what I would do to have that guitar today? I just wish somebody would have, like, said to me, Joe, trust me, you do not want to sell this. You know, you'll be so glad you did it. Your future self will thank me. And, you know, let me take it from you so that you can not get rid of this thing. Now, we all have small regrets that are unique to your own story and your own interests, I'm sure. But we also probably have larger regrets as well. These are moments when we make moves that make perfect sense to us at the time, but in our limited mindset, we didn't see the whole picture. We didn't see the whole story that we are a part of. And what we needed in that moment uh, was just a voice outside of us and outside of our limited perspective, a gentle but knowing voice, a firm but kind voice that encourages us in a better way. This is the voice of Hebrews to us, except the stakes are much higher than selling a guitar. The stakes are so much higher. So in Hebrews 12, verse 16, the author of Hebrews says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. Now why is the author of Hebrews bringing up Esau? The author continues, Who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Do you remember Esau as we were exploring the Old Testament? In a moment of hunger, Esau traded his entire inheritance for a pot of stew. Now I've tasted some really good soups in my life when I'm hungry. If you've been on the Men's Adventure Weekend, do you remember the chili after the day of hiking? Anybody? With the cornbread? Yes? That is a seriously good bowl of soup. Okay? That is amazing. But I'm willing, look, I'm willing to bet Esau lived to regret that here. And it turns out he did. The author of Hebrews is saying something similar to the church community. I know you're hungry. I know life is hard right now. I know you're experiencing unasked for suffering. I know church isn't a happy place for you right now. I get it. I get it. I get it. But in this moment of hunger, says the author of Hebrews, don't trade in your inheritance. You'll regret it. 
I recently read, and I'm quoting now, quote, that in 2019, 100% of practicing Christians and churched adults had gone to church within the past six months. 100%. And then six months into the pandemic, 19% and 22% hadn't gone to church at all. Digital, physical, or reopened. One in five churchgoers had simply stopped attending all forms of church in 2020. And this author describes this moment as the beginning of what he calls the new exodus. I want to say this. If we're reading Hebrews, honestly, there's nothing new about an exodus when it comes to following Jesus. There's nothing new about Jesus' followers finding it hard to gather with the community of Jesus. To endure when like life just accumulates more and more disappointment. For all kinds of reasons. And all kinds of valid reasons. As we say each morning here, I hope we think it's a miracle that, that you are all here. And we mean that in a non-condescending way. We actually think it is a miracle of God that we are gathering this morning like we are. There are so many obstacles to engaging and entrusting ourselves to a church community and to the Lord Himself. And personally, even though I'm a pastor and like not supposed to say this, I get it. I actually get it. And I can understand why it's hard. But as a pastor, I also want to say with the author of Hebrews, let's make sure we don't sell our birthright. Okay? I want to say both. I know it's hard, and I want to empathize, and I also want to say what I want to hear, actually. Stay in the race. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. Don't sell your birthright. Or what the author of Hebrews calls your confidence. In chapter 10, verse 32, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you, were, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So... Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So on the one hand, you can't blame them for having a hard time gathering church. Amen? (laughs) Reading what you just read? You can't blame them. But the author of Hebrews doesn't want to treat these dear believers in a way that would make them lose the best thing, which is the presence of God through Jesus. Or in the word of one scholar, to let go of Christ and thus their own experience of God's presence. I think Hebrews threads the needle. On the one hand, this book is empathic about suffering. At no point do you read the author of Hebrews sort of Diminishing how difficult it is to walk with Jesus with open eyes. I mean, we can close our eyes all we want, and that makes it easier, but with open eyes, it's very difficult. And the author of Hebrews does not make these suffering believers feel small or stupid because they're struggling to stay in the race. You just, you can see it right here, can't you? 
And yet, on the other hand, as I said, it threads the needle because, on the other hand, while it says following Jesus can be terrible, also, Hebrews says, hang on. Hang on, because Jesus is everything. I think this is timely for all of us. I think this is timely. Hebrews is a letter for our times. It's an exhortation to stay with Jesus and to stay with his people. Even when everything inside of us screams, there is no way. No way. And maybe that's us this morning. Maybe we're barely hanging on this morning. How can we hang on? Well, again, taking the area of view of Hebrews, I see two things that this author does to encourage those who are having trouble hanging on, to hang on. And I want to look at each. I see grace-shaped caution, and I see grace-shaped encouragement in this letter. And so to begin with grace-shaped caution, uh, we can observe in the letter of Hebrews what is very famously described as the warning passages. If you study Hebrews at all, you're going to hear that phrase, the warning passages. Some people, I think sadly, reduce Hebrews to the warning passages. Here's just a few. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. These warnings, I think if we read them, uh, in a way can land on us in a harsh manner, can't they? And so folks have often debated, how can the gospel of grace mesh with these kinds of words, these kinds of warnings? Folks can ask the question and wrestle with this, how can the warnings and the dangers of what is called apostasy, how can that square with the blessed assurance of salvation? Well, to that I ask, and I say, these folks must have never gone on a bike ride with a seven-year-old. And let me explain. All of our boys started going on bike rides with me around age seven. And one of the most loving and assuring things I can do before we embark on this bike ride is to offer loving caution. Warning. And I'm confident the whole time I'm doing it that they will heed the warnings. That's not the point. I'm not an enemy to my children when I give them warnings about the dangers of cars flying down the road while riding a bike. I'm not an enemy to my children when I say, if you swerve out of the, you know, out of the slipstream, you, that's bad. I'm not an enemy to my children when I say that. And even if they lose their head from time to time and forget or make a mistake, I'm not even worried that the big picture is solid. Part of my assurance and part of their assurance is my works. The author of Hebrews has a similar attitude after a brutally honest warning about apostasy, about leaving Jesus altogether. He writes this, even though we speak like this this morning, dear friends, 
We're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. And then chapter 10, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and who are saved. You see what the author of Hebrews is doing? Basically, this author is saying, I understand and I have to give you warnings about what this is, but I don't think that's you. I don't think that's you at all. And so the warnings are coming from a friend, not an enemy. It's coming from a confident person. It's actually coming from the confidence of the Lord Himself. See, caution and assurance go hand in glove. So much depends on who's giving the warning. Is it someone who believes in you and knows that you are going to succeed and stay faithful? Or are these warnings coming from someone who wants to see you fail? And we know that the Lord is confident that what He started in you, He will finish. And so we receive his warnings in the same way. Are you struggling to hang on this morning? Hear this. The Lord is confident. The Lord is absolutely confident that you will hang on. He's more confident than you are that you will hang on. And so the warnings in Hebrews are like a loving parent, not a cruel uh, enemy. And how unloving would it be if God to leave us without warnings. Imagine me giving no warnings to my children on the back of And when it comes to following Jesus, the stakes are so much higher than crashing the back. The stakes are even higher than a tragic death. The stakes are eternal. The stakes are eternal. Life with or life apart from God. For all of eternity. The stakes are so high. And so if, the, if you're drifting from Jesus this morning... I want you to see the heart of God in these warnings. That's what I want you to see. He longs to draw near you. And in his perfect and jealous longing, he wants to remove anything, anything that threatens that. And so let's receive his grace-shaped caution this morning. But that's not all he gives us. He also gives us profound encouragement. So it is kind of a bummer that when folks read Hebrews and study it, they only say, oh, that's the book with the warning passages. And they don't say, oh, that's the book with the amazing encouragements. Because that's honestly what it is. It's an amazing sermon that has grace-shaped caution and grace-shaped encouragement. And we need both. The only way we'll stay with Jesus is if we get steady encouragement. And the Lord has designed that we receive that. And Hebrews tells us of two different ways. From Jesus himself and from Jesus' followers. So the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus himself is cheering you on. Hebrews, if you want the big picture, is really a two-point sermon. The first point is how Jesus is superior to all things that you wouldn't think so. So angels and Moses and other things. No, Jesus is above all of it. And that's point one. And the second point of the sermon is just how Jesus is the true high priest, the true and perfect high priest. If you're with us with the Old Testament, you know the high priest has a unique role in the story of God. Starting with Moses' brother, the high priests were critical players in God's story. They ensured that God's people had access to the presence of God. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the great high priest that all of these high priests were leading us up to. This high priest gives us access to God. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him 
because he always lives to intercede for them. Right this very moment, Jesus is interceding for you. He is cheering you on. This high priest, who is Jesus, empathizes with our weakness. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. This high priest does not stand apart from your struggles, but without sin can empathize with them. And who doesn't just see our need and empathize, but is actually powerful enough as God in flesh to save us in our need. So it's one thing to receive empathy, and that's amazing. And if you don't receive empathy in this life, and if you don't have friends who are able to empathize, and to sit with you, and to see you, to really see what you're going through, and to see your struggles, you've got you to gotta find people who can do that. And it's one thing to have that, and it's essential to have that. And it's so assuring to even know that Jesus does that with us. But it's on a whole other order when the person who can see your weakness and your struggles can also save you and rescue you. And that's what we have with Jesus. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This high priest did this at greatest cost to himself. He sacrificed for their sins. Now, don't read on for a second. If you're reading the Old Testament and you're reading about the office of the high priest, this is a very expected statement about their job. He sacrificed for their sins. But what were they doing? They were sacrificing on the great day of atonement for all the sins of all of God's people. The perfect, spotless lamb. Well, what do we read here? An absolute shock. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Only a priest who is both God and man could do such an amazing, shocking thing. And this alone gives us confidence. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Jesus is cheering for you. He's cheering for your faith to finish, which is why he's called in Hebrews the pioneer and perfecter of faith. The starter and the finisher of your faith. Jesus himself is cheering you on. Right now, he is speaking your very name to the ear of his father. And as others have put it, oh, what it would be like if we could hear that. This very moment. How encouraging would that be for you, right? This very moment. To hear the Lord Jesus himself speak your name to the Father. And to receive 
encouraging. And that's what's happening. But that's not all. The faithful Jesus is cheering you on with his faithful people who have gone before you. After a long list of well-known and some unnamed believers, folks with what could only be described as enduring faith, folks who, with what only could be described as tenacious faith, over and over again the author of Hebrews says, even though this terrible thing happened, they kept on walking. Even though this happened, they kept on walking. Even though they didn't have this to rely upon, they kept on walking. We could call it an even though faith. And so after this long list of men and women with an even though faith, Hebrews gives us this amazing image. We are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And so many folks have pointed out how this image could very well be the image of an amphitheater where a race would actually be occurring. And perhaps the cloud of witness is what you would see if you were to look up at the great stairs that go up and up and up and the great stands of people roaring for you to succeed. Roaring for you to keep on putting one foot in front of the other. Faith in Jesus is an endurance race. It just is. But we're not alone. We have Jesus cheering for us, and we have an entire throng of people who have gone before us, saying, it is worth it. I promise you it is worth it. Do not sell your inheritance for a stew. Do not. It is worth it. I promise you it is worth it. And they're yelling that into your ear this very time. Because I've been immersed in the Tour de France these past three weeks, I cannot help but think of the mountain stages on this great race, where there is a throng of people cheering you on. And so you're going at this like 11% incline after riding for like three hours, and everything in you is screaming, stop. And yet you have this great cloud of folks who are literally, I mean, in some cases, they reach their hands out and they push you up the mountain. This year, this like dynamic, this really, I think, great feature of the Tour de France has caused a lot of problems, like wrecks, people wrecking because of the crowds swarming the racers. And so there's been talk, as there is most years, I find out, about curbing the fans and, and sort of reducing the fan presence, especially on these a mountain tour on these mountain stages. But I listened to one champion cyclist say this. Yeah, I know they can sometimes cause trouble, but I would never, ever, ever, ever ban these fans. They keep me going. And listen, these are mostly drunk strangers. <laughs> who probably use an electric bike to get up the mountain. <laughs> How much more inspiring would this picture be if every single face on this image were former cyclists who had gone before Wat Van Aert? 
even like decades ago, in a sort of like, I don't know, like, field of dreams moment, former cyclists emerging out of cornfields and cheering on this racer. How much more powerful would that be to that racer? I think of the time that our littlest, Lewis, was finishing a triathlon, a kid's triathlon in our neighborhood. His brothers had literally gone before him and finished. And so when Lewis approached the finale, they ran alongside him. And that is the image. Finishers who have the authority and experience to say it is worth it, coming alongside you and cheering you on as you're about to give up. That's what's happening in this very moment. That's what happened. Friends, this is a great cloud of witnesses. You're not alone. You are a part of something gigantic. You have, we're going to say, you have Moses in your ear saying, keep pressing. You have Rahab in your ear saying, keep pushing. It's worth it. And more than that, you have Jesus in your ear. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning exchange, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This spring, uh, my family went to an OSU tennis match. And if you've ever been to a team tennis match or played in a team tennis match, everybody starts at the same time. One, two, and three singles, one and two doubles, they all start at the same time. And as players finish their match, they start watching their teammates who are still playing. And if their teammates are still playing, it means they're probably in a grueling face-off. Well, when we were there, there was this player who was on the sidelines who must have finished really quick, who kept shouting encouragement after every single point. I see you, KB. I see you. Next point. Come on, KB. Next point. I see you. Next point. I see you. Next point. Come on, KB. Next point. I see you. It was every single point. And so we started to laugh. Didn't we? We started to laugh. It was hilarious. It was annoying, to be honest. But I told them, that cheering is not for us. Uh, that cheering was for his teammate, whom he loved. And he was in danger of losing heart. So his teammate was a rumble strip. Kind of grating, <laughs> a little bit annoying, but it was so kind. And so is Hebrews. For the ancient church and for us today, we are in danger of drifting. We're always in danger. And if you don't think you're in danger of drifting, you are in most danger of drifting. Amen? I have a friend who says faith is hard. Hebrews is a divine amen to such a statement. But God doesn't just affirm that faith is hard, He cheers us on. And He gives us everything necessary to stay in the race. Lord, would you do that to us and do such a work for us this morning? We pray that in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, 
please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.